Welcome to Latte with a Lawyer, a podcast dedicated to bringing you the stories of some of America's most successful lawyers, figuring out what makes them tick, how they creatively solve problems, and how others aspiring to be them can follow in their footsteps. Here's your host, Jacob Wells. Welcome to Latte with a Lawyer. I'm your host, Jacob Wells, and today I'm really excited because we have a great episode for you. Here's our guest, Howard Schweitzer. Welcome to the show. Jacob, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, thanks so much for uh, spending some time with us today. I know you're a pretty busy guy, um, but before we get into the episode, can you just give our listeners a bit of an overview of who you are? Sure. So, I'm Howard Schweitzer. I am the CEO of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, which is the government affairs arm of Cozen O'Connor, which is an AMLA 100 law firm. I'm also a shareholder in the law firm, but we have a separate subsidiary, Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies. That's where I spend, spend most of my time and uh, we advise clients on issues relating to government, um, the federal government, and then state and local government as well, specifically in New York, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Virginia. But, but we really go coast to coast and advise clients across the country on issues relating to how they interface with government. Cool. And I know, um, based on some of the bio about you that I read, you have a lot of history working with government. And like you said, now you're working with government as well. Um, when you wanted to become a lawyer, when you were uh, in college and try to figure out what you want to do, how did you first of all, get into the legal side of things and then shift your focus within that into working with government? Yeah, well, what Jacob, when I was in college, I, I mean, I'd always been interested in kind of politics and um, I chose, went to University of Michigan undergrad, go blue, uh, <laughs> and, and then chose to go to law school in Washington uh, at GW um, because I wanted to be in DC in and around the intersection of law, politics, and, and government. I did a semester uh, in Washington during college. Um, that was my version of study abroad. So yeah, how was it that? was kind of, kind of always something I was, I was interested in. Right. So what was that semester abroad in DC like? So I had an internship and we did course rotation. We had all sorts of interesting guest speakers, senators, uh, people in government, and uh, it was fascinating. And I actually interned for a guy back then who had a lobbying practice. And so um, the roots of, of what I do now were kind of sewn back uh, in, in 1990 when I was doing that internship. Gotcha. So back in 1990, uh, what did the political landscape look like? What were you focusing on? What was really uh, some of the key issues that appealed to you and kind of inspired you to uh, affect change? Uh, you know, 
I was always interested in um, issues related to uh, foreign policy, um, Israel-related uh, issues, but I wouldn't say I was like super focused mm-hmm. back then. Um, and I've always had a kind of a broad range of interests. And I, I guess that's kind of the story of my of my career. I've always been a bit of a generalist. Um, mm-hmm. I like doing lots of different things and um, keeps life interesting. And that's kind of the way I've approached my, my career. Right. Gotcha. And uh, I know you brought up Israel a bit. I don't want to go into it too much, but with everything happening now, um, do you have anything uh, that's on your mind regarding that? Uh, it's a it's a very complicated, obviously, uh, part of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and the media, I mean, look, it's serious what's going on now. Obviously, it looks like, you know, they're on the brink of a, a I don't know to, whether to call it war, but it's, it's obviously yeah. very serious. But, um, you know, the, if I've learned anything in Washington in the past, however many years it's been now, it's that, you know, you, you can't operate on the basis of, of just the headlines because uh, things get distorted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I haven't, um, I was texting the other day with a, a, a friend of mine who's over there. I, I, I think, we have to take a wait and see. And, and I think there may be something going on below the level of the headlines that um, kind of deescalates this, but we'll, we'll see. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, so you were, you were saying earlier that, you know, that you are a lawyer, but that you are not the traditional lawyer and that you know, you work with government a lot. Can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the things that are similar, some of the things that are different, and how, despite what you're doing now, that education and practice has informed what you do now? Yeah. So, I mean, lawyers at the end of the day are... Yeah, you go to law school, you learn how to kind of think like a lawyer. Um, But not every lawyer is walking into a courtroom and arguing cases or, um, you know, handling murder trials or whatever it is. It's like the the television dramatization of what being a lawyer means is very different than it, than it means in, in practice. And I believe any good lawyer can do anything. You may have to learn the substance, but at the end of the day, practicing law is about issue spotting and, and good judgment. And my Mm -hmm. philosophy has always been, uh, if you have the ability to spot issues and good critical thinking skills, good judgment, um, 
kind of layer that on top of um, a situation and, and you usually can get all the way there or if not all the way there, you know, pretty darn close. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's kind of my philosophy. That's my work philosophy generally. Right. I, when I was um, a baby lawyer, I worked at a firm for a year and then I went into the government. I went into uh, an, an in-house role, so to speak, at the Export-Import Bank, which is a government corporation that finances U.S. exports to emerging markets. And I started out there as um, the at the bottom of the ladder in yep. a group of, of, of 25 plus lawyers with incredible credentials, most of whom were doing transactional law. They were deal lawyers mm -hmm. doing project finance transactions. And I, what I tried to do was kind of use common sense and good judgment and, um, and work really hard. One of the things about being in government is, I mean, people do work hard, particularly lawyers, because there's like a professional dedication. But, um, you know, people in government, it's just, it's, it's a different cadence. And yeah, so my sure. view was, if you're looking to, um, you know, really make a name for yourself, like I was when I was young, mm -hmm. um, just work really, really hard like really put in the effort and there will be opportunities to kind of move up the food chain. It was an unorthodox way to start my career. Uh, but it, but it, uh, proved itself out. I was able to, to move up and take on more, more responsibility over time. Right. So you mentioned that, um, a lot of what people think of when they think of lawyers is what they see on TV, a guy in the courtroom, um, some Johnny Cochran like guy, right? Um, growing up, was that something that initially appealed to you or you kind of saw through the uh, what's portrayed in Hollywood to something more meaningful? And was there a role model uh, that you looked up to? There wasn't a role model per se. I mean, I always liked... I was like kind of arguing my side of an issue. Um, yeah. My um, friends uh, from my high school history class uh, will, who are still very close friends of mine, will tell you will oh, wow. tell you that I liked arguing my side of an issue. But um, yeah, I wouldn't say I had a role model per se. And I, you know, look, I think when you're young you don't really know. I think it's a rare person that really knows what they want to do. And I think life takes twists and turns and mm -hmm. your career takes twists and turns. And um, the key is to capitalize on the opportunities. But I, I never in a million years could have told you back when I was a teenager that I was going to have the unusual career yeah. That I've had. 
I got to ask you about the teenage Howard. What was it like in high school? You got to give me a story of the arguing. <laughs> Is there anything that comes to mind? The teenage Howard. Most of those are not fit for the, uh, the airwaves. <laughs> you're, be you're better yeah. off asking uh, my friends and parents. But Gotcha. <laughs> um, but uh, there was a kid in my high school history class. I'll just use that. Who was like super, super liberal. And I was kind of more conservative. And every day Isaiah Rothberg and I would go into history class and it was kind of the no nukes movement of the, you know, in the 1980s and, and, yeah. and we duke it out and he of course, became a, a right winger and I guess I was persuasive he joined the the Israeli defense forces and um the rest is history but uh anyway yeah that, I'll take it that's great um so speaking of uh all the politics and all that uh you worked in a pretty high level political um role with the Bush administration, Clinton administration, Obama administration. Um, what was it like working with such different presidents? And uh, what was it that exactly that you were doing there? So I really got my, I really kind of broke through under Bush. Um, one thing led to another. I was the deputy. I'd worked my way up to being deputy general counsel of the Exim Bank, uh, where I mentioned I started earlier. And um, it was the second George W. Bush term, and I was very close with um, our, our, our acting chairman, who made me acting general counsel. And then we kind of uh, moved into the into the permanent roles together. Uh, both of those were um, presidential appointments. And uh, you know, it was I mean, it was amazing, totally amazing. And you know, probably you know just a, a fascinating job because it well, it's not just, when you're in that kind of a role, you're the general counsel of a federal agency. You are, um, as I said, you're 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 the consigliere, not just the general counsel. <laughs> you yeah. are applying your judgment, and it, it's much more a, a senior kind of political slash legal slash um, just kind of general advisor kind of role and so yeah this was a multi an agency with a, a 50 billion dollar portfolio and doing huge deals around wow. the world and very involved in um things like um the economic dialogue with china back then and all sorts of fascinating things that i i was able to that i had at the seat at a seat at the table for negotiations with congress and the state department and the treasury department. And uh, I'll tell you that things don't change or back then didn't change that much from administration to administration. Like 
again, this like goes to the headlines thing. Like there's not that much difference between a George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Joe Biden administration, Bill Clinton administration. There's like, yes, at the level of the headlines, yes, at the level of kind of macro policy, they're different. Day to day, they're not that different. And most of the decisions that get made would get made in any of those administrations. The Trump mm. administration, <laughs> that was different. I was gonna that ask was different. You, yeah. <laughs> but but by and large, you know, in the in the course of a normal administration, things things just don't change that much. Yeah, I was I was gonna ask you uh, because definitely it's a more polarizing time nowadays. Uh, and what do you think there was anybody as polar that that was obviously not as polarizing, but was there anybody that was different than so those three that you said wasn't much of a difference? Mm. Would you say there was any politician that comes to mind that was a stark contrast? Well, remember in 2008, um, which is when I moved over to, to Treasury to stand up the, the bank bailout, the TARP for, for Hank Paulson, mm -hmm. we had a presidential election going on concurrently with attempting to combat the financial crisis. Yeah. And um, it was John McCain running against Barack Obama. And John McCain uh, picked Sarah Palin oh, as yeah. <laughs> his vice presidential running mate. And um, a lot of people look back at Sarah Palin as kind of the, the first Trumpy the kind of- yeah. 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 So <laughs> I would say, um, Sarah Palin. I mean, you always had your um, people like Bernie Sanders, who still, you know, he's a more potent political force than he was back then. But in his own way, I mean, I, I, I think he's pretty from the other side of things. I mean, he's not mm -hmm. as he's, I don't know, he, he's, I think he's pretty Trumpy in a lot of ways. Um, so you've always had people, but that was a national ticket um, and this out of nowhere pick. And I think John McCain is still kicking himself um, from his grave that he, <laughs> that he picked Sarah Palin because it was, obviously it backfired. It was a horrendous choice. It came down to her, Joe Lieberman and he went with Sarah Palin and it, it was not a good thing. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting comparison. I haven't thought about Sarah Palin in a while. Um, but yeah, it's definitely uh, interesting to see how the political landscape has uh, changed recently. Um, and yeah, and look, you know, people think that I think um, that what we did in 0809, um, from a policy point of view, which had to be done, 
um, in, in, in many ways precipitated some of the Trumpy politics we, we've been through. You know, mm-hmm. bailouts and bonuses uh, for Wall Street don't play well on Main Street, nor should they. And as much as we had to do what we did, I think um, it precipitated a lot of the um, political fallout that ultimately led to to Trump getting elected in in 2016. I what I would tell people is that that was part of the political workout. That the financial workout took 10 years that the political workout also had to kind of uh, run its course. Unfortunately, nobody anticipated a global pandemic on, on top of that. And so, I mean, Joe Biden is, is a much more stable and traditional figure for sure by a mile, um, <laughs> you know, uh, but but in but it's still a very politically polarizing time, obviously. Yeah. And I think the shifts that we've been through are reflective of kind of the, the, the fact that um, the that Main Street is was being left behind. Yeah. And I've been thinking about recently how we've reached this boiling point and you may not like the other half of the country. But they're still out there. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts on what to do with those people that don't feel like they're being heard. Because, you know, if you live in a a big urban area like I do, like in New York, you don't really see what what goes on in the rest of the world. And uh, they're still out there. So what is Is there a solution to this? I mean, it's this it's all about people's feeling of security and that translates to jobs, um, income, wealth, uh, feeling, you know, the, the feeling comfortable. And there's been, because of a bunch of different factors, this economic dislocation that is is troubling and so i think i think you have to think about things like this in long-term broad terms and so things like skills training and i think i think biden does have he has this american jobs plan this you know obviously green jobs are very important i i think transforming our workforce it's it's all about jobs um a lot of jobs low wage low paying jobs have gone overseas some of that is maybe coming back to some extent but i think we have to create opportunity we have to look to the future and create opportunity um and we have to be thoughtful about um the haves versus the the have-nots, and I'm I'm a free market kind of guy, but um, you have to be thinkful. You have to be thoughtful about 
conscious capitalism and mm. making sure that um, the little guy isn't left behind by, by the big guy. And that, you know, those are tough things to grapple with. Yeah, absolutely. Very well said. That's a interesting insight into that. Um, so I want to switch up the, the direction of the conversation a little bit. Um, for anybody that's listening out there that is an aspiring lawyer or somebody who wants to go into politics, what would your advice be uh, for them? Um, my advice would be do as I say, not as I do. Make sure you really want to be a lawyer if you're going to spend the money to go to law school. Um, you know, because by and large, day to day, I mean, I am a lawyer. I am a good lawyer, um, but I, I think I you don't have to go to law school to go into lobbying and politics and right. government. And and so I tell people, you know, sure, it's a great education. It's also a very very expensive education, and I really only think you should go to law school if when you come out of law school you want to be a lawyer. And I can't tell you how many conversations I have because I talk to people's kids all the time <laughs> all, along these lines. And, yeah. and that's my best advice, but it comes with a do as I say, not as I do caveat, because I didn't follow my own advice. It's, you know, I think when you, if you're going to go to law school, you need to learn how to practice law. You, you have to leave law school and go work for a big firm where you learn to think with precision and in, in Rolls-Royce terms, um, you know, I, I went into government after a short stint at a law firm. And in government, I always say you, you, you're trying to build a Chevrolet and not a Rolls-Royce. In a law firm, you have to build a Rolls-Royce. You have to be right. And that's the best way to learn how to practice law. Then you can go and do all sorts of different things. And God knows, I mean, there are a million lawyers doing a million yeah. running companies and investing and this and that. But if you're going to spend the money and the time, it will, I personally, you know, it's, it's not a fun way to spend three years for me anyway. It wasn't. <laughs> um, just know that you want to do it. Yeah. That's my best advice. Absolutely. Love to hear that. Um, so in terms of other education that people could get outside of the classroom, uh, what's one book that has inspired you, whether it be law or anything in general, honestly, um, if you could bring one book to the office yeah. tomorrow, what would that book be? Sorry so there's the a, there's a, there's a book called the Medici effect, which mm. is about, it's not a law book. Um, it's about the Medici family from uh, the Renaissance Florence, period. Right? Yes, in Florence. And it's about how they um, uh, thrived by bringing together a variety of disciplines and ways of looking at the world. And that's what made the whole greater than the sum of the parts. And um, I just think I, I, I find it fascinating. It's interesting. It informs things like, 
um, diversity, but it, it's, it, it, um, I just think it's a very instructive lesson from all sorts of points of view in business. Like you gotta, yeah, you have to bring multiple perspectives to the table. You don't, you don't make the best decisions by, um, listening to the same people say the same thing each and every day. You have to hear from different people and look at things from a diversity of viewpoints and, that's how you make a thoughtful and informed decision. And that's, right. that's how I think about things from a, from a business point of view. And ultimately lawyers are in many ways, business advisors and, and it's not just, you know, you, you're not practicing within the four corners of some textbook you're practicing within the context of a business reality mm -hmm. and you have to bring a business mindset to that reality or you're not serving your clients so that's um that's my uh what's one of my go-to's that's interesting that's a, a theme that's kind of come up before is the business side of things um and it's interesting that you brought up the Medici family because that was something that uh, was huge when I went to the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. They kept bringing up the Medici family and uh, something that I wanted to explore more. So definitely got to check out that book. And um, that definitely resonates with me. And I've heard that before about hiring some uh, hiring with diversity because everybody has weaknesses and you can hire people that their strengths are your weaknesses. Right. So definitely uh, great advice. Um, and uh, I'm just going to ask you one more question. Cause I, yeah. I know you're probably got somewhere else to be. Um, since this show sponsored by motion track, which is a technology company, where do you think the future of the legal industry is, whether it be with AI or any other technology that could accelerate business yeah. and make things more efficient? Well, I think of it, um, I don't think you ever get away from being that business advisor like we've been talking about, but, um, and, and you can't replicate that through 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 AI, so there's but there is but technology is um, is important and mm -hmm. um, clearly it's going to play a role. And I think I think the future it, and it's it goes beyond legal. It goes to kind of what I do now day to day, which is more more lobbying, more government affairs. It's like how do how do you influence people? And what moves the needle from an advocacy point of view? I think you have to look at law as, yes, you have a reference point in cases and precedent and, and, and that's, that's critically important, but, but it's, um, 
how do you how do you influence people? It's it's advocacy. Um, what I do is advocacy, and so I think I I think being more sophisticated in that regard and and thinking strategically and critically and analytically and from a technology point of view about how you um, register, whether it's in a courtroom, um, talking to a jury, or mm -hmm. I'm on Capitol Hill talking to a member of Congress, what's going to resonate? Yeah. And, and it's advocacy and your advocacy skills are, um, are the same no matter where you're deploying them and how can we get more sophisticated about about influencing people that's i think um uh where the future of the of the practice of law kind of broadly as as one one um element of advocacy is, is headed great what a high uh, note to end on with that answer i love it um so thanks so much for uh, taking the time today. This has been Jacob Wells for Latte with Lawyers. Thanks to Howard Schweitzer. Thanks for having me on. Uh, of course. For uh, Thank you for joining us today. And got to thank our sponsor, Motion Track, without a K, that uses artificial intelligence and mobile app audiences to economically and quickly um, gather focus group research and data for trials and mediations. So thanks again, Howard. Thanks, uh, enjoy Jacob. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too.